Good morning, church. How are you? Doing well this morning? I hope you are. Um, I'm super excited about this particular passage of Scripture this morning. I know you've probably heard it before. I think I've actually preached it here uh, at some point in the few years that I've been here. And uh, with new fresh eyes, we're going to kind of look at uh, the parables of being lost. I was thinking about lostness or what that means. Uh, Twice now, I have lost my wedding ring. Yeah, I know. It's really bad. I remember the first time I lost my wedding ring, I was in a lake in Idaho, and I hit the water hard. And some people say, why are you wearing jewelry? jewelry? Why are you wearing a ring in the water? Right? Correct that. Why are you wearing jewelry in the water? And I said, well, I just didn't think about it. And I hit the water, and I'm in a vest, and I have a, a wakeboard on me. And I looked down, and my ring falls off, and it was like Lord of the Rings, and it was gone. And I remember yelling out, and I, I couldn't grab it because I had my vest on, I had the wakeboard on, I lost it. That was a fun call to my wife. Second time, we were at a water park. Now, I didn't learn my lesson with water and rings. <laughs> I had lost a lot of weight at this point. The other one, it was a lake of like 50 degrees. It was super cold, I remember that. But we were at a water park, and I decided to be helpful with the water park. It was a place in Phoenix. We were done, and there was tons of these floaties in their lazy river. So I was helping the crew, seriously was, and I was chucking them to a pile. They were stacking them, and we're taking them out of the lazy river. And one point at which I chucked it, I threw the ring off my finger, and I lost it. They shut down that lazy river and a couple of rides just to look at filters for me to see if we could find the ring, and it was lost. And so I wear somewhere along the lines of something ring on my finger, And my wife says, the next one is a tattoo. I was thinking about there, there's two rings out there that are completely lost. I have two wedding rings that are completely lost, and yet my love is still intact. Thank you, babe, for your grace and your mercy. But I tell you, I got two rings that are lost. I have one that I have on my finger, and I haven't lost it yet. Though these rings, particularly in the sense of the story, are things that uh, are, are replaceable. I was thinking about the soul, and the soul is 100% irreplaceable. I am so glad that, and again, we'll go through the scripture, that if there is a lost soul, our Savior knows it. If there is a prodigal, he is well aware. And it won't be, well, it's lost, and so I'll find another. So I could replace these, it's just, it's metal. It does have a, obviously it has a, a great significance, as I just performed a wedding, a week or so ago, particularly about that ring, what it symbolizes. But my wife, in her grace and mercy, knows it's just a ring. It's not equivalent to the soul by any means. It is someone who will dive deep to the waters and will search every crevice and crack to find that soul. And God's well aware where every soul sits. So today, that hopefully that starts to begin to shape that which we're going to hear in the scriptures today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read the whole scripture. There'll be a few voices in the scripture. I'm going to start at verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord for us today. The tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine had swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf which has been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The old, older brother got angry and wasn't, and wasn't going to go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead 
and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Father, your word says it all. Amazing, God. The heart of the Father. I pray with fresh eyes, open and willing spirits, that we would embrace the words from this particular scripture in a way that I think you deem appropriate for us to embrace them. In a way that sheds light on our own lives. In a way that sheds light on the compassion and love that you have for your children. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's three in this particular passage. A lot of times you've probably heard the prodigal son story. And maybe even the older brother story, the elder brother story in conjunction with the prodigal son. But Jesus in Luke particularly creates a flow. And out of, out of knowledge that he had about the Pharisees' heart, and maybe even the things that they had verbally said, he was teaching notorious sinners and tax collectors. And out of that knowledge that the, that the religious teachers and laws of that, day, of that day were complaining that he was associating with such sinful people, he began to tell three Parables, parables of the lost. A sheep, a coin, and a son. Particularly the sheep. Let us think about the sheep for just one moment. There are a hundred count in this particular scripture. And the shepherd or the caretaker of the sheep leaves 99. And we got to pay attention to these particular details because they're of the most importance for us to understand how this scripture might actually apply to us. The shepherd is the protector of these sheep. The owner would never, ever want to lose even one. And so this one sheep is found by itself. And one sheep by itself is as good as dead. And so sheep, as we understand can be a bit ignorant about the dangers that exist outside the cares of the shepherd. How many can identify with that? We've all been there. But particularly, we're talking about the animal, and they are ignorant. They're kind of considered a little dumb in this sense. They're, they're, they're the most unable to actually find their way back to the flock. So the shepherd leaves 99 so that he could find the one. He... he he leaves the 99 in the open country where there is grazing and maybe protection of the masses. This is a safe place for the 99. It's not like the father in the this, in this sense or the shepherd in the sense or the woman in the sense ever leaves the responsibility of what they feel like is important. Of course, the 99, but they are taken care of. Those other, other sheep are okay, but in the sense of finding the soul that is lost, he goes to seek it. And he will cross any particular type of terrain to get there, wherever that sheep is gone. So as he leaves a place that is given provision and ample supply, because the one has wandered away from that, has wandered away from the flock, he goes and pursues. See, this one sheep is so valuable that he will seek it out and cross any land, cross any danger 
whatever that sheep has crossed, he enters into for the sake of the one that has gone astray. Now, when he catches up with the sheep and he finds this sheep, he's excited and he does what? The scripture says he throws the sheep onto his shoulders and carries it back home. Then this man gathers his friends and neighbors together and they celebrate the finding of this one. And it says there's a grand celebration in heaven as well. Seems like a time at which heaven and earth collide. When one that is lost is found. When one that was dead is now alive. And so the party begins. In the pursuit of the sheep, like Jesus in this life, we participate in the pursuit of lost people. We pay attention. See, we go to where lost sheep are. We lift them up. We carry the burden for them. And we rejoice when they are found. Our rejoicing connects heaven and earth. That's who we are because our God is a God of love and compassion. As we find out in the story of the third story of the son. So we have been given the same love and compassion and desire for every soul to be found. Then there's the coin. You see, there are ten coins, but nine coins aren't good enough. How many have lost a coin down the seat of the car there, and you just can't find it or get it? How many have lost, well, you find it usually in the rattle of the dryer, but you lost, lost coins. We have a, a place where we put all the coins that have been forgotten in pockets and whatnot. Um, sometimes it's not valuable to find even a penny on the street. How many walk by that penny? I try not to walk by that penny. Somebody told me a story, everything's valuable, and particularly on the penny. It was an older gentleman, well into his years, but an established CEO, and he's walking with all his, a few of his uh, coworkers, employees down the streets, and he has all this money, and he picks up the coin, and they thought that was really weird because he's so rich. And so finally someone broke down and asked him, why'd you pick up that coin? He says, well... On the coin it says, in God we trust. This has more value than the one cent. I am reminded, what am I not trusting God with at this moment? You can find value in everything in every moment. And those things that maybe have lost value, maybe we've lost sight of the idea of value. And so she has lost one coin. But in this particular scenario, this one coin is worth a day's worth of wages. How many here would just love to lose a day's worth of wages? No, you wouldn't. Neither would I. So the hunt began. Desperate in search, the lady lights a lamp, gives adequate lighting to the room or to the house, and begins to clean and sweep and probably rearrange and move things in her desperate search to find this coin. Whatever is necessary to create visibility, to seek dilig diligently and to find that last lost coin, she was going to do it. Cleans up the environment to make things clear. A search for the lost coin has to be a thorough search for 90% is not good enough. God wants the 100%. And when the coin is found, she brings the coin and celebrates amongst her family and her neighbors. 
and two. There is celebration in heaven, and once again, heaven and earth collide. As it is in heaven, may it be on earth, God. We celebrate over lostness that has been now found. In the pursuit of this coin, like Jesus, we let others know, listen to this, the persistence of God. We let them know their value. No one is invaluable to God. Not one soul. Every soul matters to God. And it's up to the church and the people of God to let others know their value. God is not okay with one being lost. And for the sake of lost souls, we will be a part of a cleaning process to help everyone see clearly. Whatever needs to be removed from our lives or rearranged or swept and made clean is purposeful for the sake of finding the lost coin. No, no, it's just not like, oh, that person or that circumstance. We are a part of that. God does work in our life and continues so that we might be as persistent as God, as compassionate and loving as God, and always remember the value of every single person in this world. And then, though, there's the son. And, and he tells a parable kind of in a similar way, but not a similar way. You see, in this circumstance, the son has free will. Though it hurts God's heart, in this sense, or the father's heart, he lets his son go. Yes, God pursues, but he cannot trump the free will of our souls. The sheep and the coin have nothing to do with being restored. The sheep is found. When found, the shepherd puts the sheep on the shoulder and marches back to bring them back to the flock. What a great story of being restored. It did not seek to be found, however, it had no clue what to do. It had to be found because it was lost and there was no way back. That's how God enters in and makes himself known and brings him back to the fold. It would have died, but because of God's grace, he saved it and brought it back to the 99. Sounds a lot like God's patience and perseverance with the people of Israel throughout all time and continued and his perseverance for every Gentile that have known the name of the Lord. And I'll explain that in a moment. But I want you to hear this. God made it happen. Nothing of the will of the sheep made him be found. The coin is found because of a diligent search and put back into the coin bag. See, the coin did not reposition itself. It didn't shine itself up and say, here I am, God. It, everything around it had to be cleaned up. Everything possibly moved in the diligent search. Everything had to be lit up for ample lighting to find this coin. There was no free will of this coin. Wherever it was located was where it was dropped last. There was nothing the coin could do to be found. So it did not participate in being found. And God will not, listen, God will not miss a soul and therefore will seek to find every lost coin and he knows where they're at. The son, however, 
It's a different story. The son has to respond and the son has to participate. The son has to repent and receive the grace that is ready to be offered by the father. In the last two weeks, we've talked about humility. And when we don't choose humility, it usually finds us in the way of humiliation. See, humiliation is sometimes what is needed to bring us to our senses. And that is the picture of the one that sat with the pigs and just wished to eat pig food. God loves us so much that he's willing to use that humiliation to get our attention. This son was humiliated. But does God give them the opportunity to come back? Absolutely. This is why Jesus died. Not the sheep and not the coin. The son in this story represents humankind. There must be genuine repentance, restitution, and restora restoration. The way this works in one's life is it says he came to his senses. He was mindful of his circumstances. He was completely humiliated and didn't know where to turn. And so he thought to himself, devised a plan to return. He said to himself, at home the hired servants have enough food to spare and I am here dying. I will go home to my father. I have sinned against both you and heaven and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. So just make me a servant and I will serve you. He plans to humble himself. He plans to repent from his wrongdoing, from his being prodigal to being at least a servant in the kingdom. And so in this plan, he turns and heads the other direction. He's changed his mind, he's come to his senses, and he's turned, and he's made movement now back towards the Father. And he's going now to make restitution, make it right, put pieces back. What? I will work as a servant until I die to pay back everything I blew that I might just have life still. But in the moment of, of, of declaring that before the father, repenting and even giving his spiel on restitution, the father instantly restores him because he knows the heart. It's a beautiful picture. The father always made known to both sons what he had access to. This was love. He gave with no expectation that it would be given back to him. So much so that the father let the younger son choose to walk away. And so like the Father, God waits expectantly upon every soul. And then God waits. And then God waits. And then God waits. And then God waits. And in this story, one came to their senses and turned. And God was waiting. The Father fully restores the Son that chose to leave and squander his whole life and his future. And he does a few things for the son. An immediate embrace. Fully restored, he does these things. He throws an absolute huge party. Now think about this. The party that happens in heaven when one soul is lost. What is that like? It's like, yes, as if you'd done nothing wrong. That is the God we serve. That's the kind of party that is thrown. As if Nothing was done wrong. And he sticks a robe on his son. 
a sign that you've made, been made clean, new clothes, a sense of a new spirit, and all has been forgiven. And then he gave him a ring, and he renews his identity as his son, for you are the father's. And he gives him sandals, that which is fit for service and responsibility now to walk in godliness fresh and new. And then finally, he kills the fattened calf, sacrifices, listen to me, sacrifices the best so that we could celebrate new life. And Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could celebrate a new life restored with God. And then family and friends come and celebrate, except for one, the elder son. In pursuit of lost souls, we need to understand God's grace. John Wesley talks about three particular ways in which grace works itself out. There's prevenient grace. We talked about this one that goes before. It's active in our life prior to our circumstances, but it's there all the while wooing us and calling us in. Then there's this justifying grace at which just as if I never did it, a robe, a ring, sandals, and a fattened calf. And then there's sanctifying grace. It's a work that is now ongoing and empowers us to be what we are now intended to be. We are to participate in this kind of grace. When he gets to the elder son, and we probably break that down, we've broken that down a lot, you've probably heard it broken down, but there's something wrong with the elder son heart. This is where it climaxes to. This is what Jesus is pointing to, though there are the sinners in the story there are those, the ones that declare themselves as doing all the right things and yet is upset about what God's doing with the sinners. And it sounds a whole lot like the Pharisees complaining at the beginning of the story about Jesus sitting and eating with the sinners and sharing these stories. It's a full circle story. When I think about this grace, these three parables, and a lot of times we will read these parables with this lens. That it's about the world. These are about the ones that don't know about God. But I'd like to present something slightly different this morning. Are these parables about the unbeliever? Who are the lost? I believe these stories are about the believer. The sheep was the shepherds, the coin was the woman's, and the son was the father's. The sheep comes back to the fold, the coin placed in the coin purse are, is with the other coins, and the son is restored to the family and the kingdom. If it is God's grace that is necessary, then we have to have response here. Basically, for the older son, a life absent of grace looks upon the situation and would assess that Peter, who repents, has actually no chance to be in the kingdom and be restored because he walked away from Jesus. But I say to you this morning, our God is a God of chances. We want to make this story about lost souls, but particularly outside of the family of God. 
Who here has not gone astray? Who here has not wandered? Even when you made a declaration, you said, I received Christ in my life. Maybe you even got baptized. Maybe you remember being sanctified. But who is not strong? Who is not prone to stray? Every single one of us is prone to stray. I want to touch on holiness for a moment because I believe this is a component of holiness. Compassion. Of course, love. It's love and compassion in which the father reaches out and is waiting for the son and restores him. If we're not careful, holiness is only defined by what we don't do or what we do rather than who we are because of Christ's work of grace in our lives. A holy people have been shown compassion and love because a holy God shows compassion and love. Jesus had compassion. Listen, Jesus had compassion for the tax collectors and for those notorious sinners and he had compassion for even those Pharisees and teachers of the law. His grace is sufficient for all people. He had compassion for the lost children of Israel. And so he has compassion also for the believers. Do you know this today for yourself? Take a moment. You were dead but are now alive. You were lost and now found were the words. Is that you? The older brother's voice may seem louder in your life than the father's voice today. The scripture is clear. God's grace is enough and has always been enough. We don't excuse what somebody has done in rebellion, but we accept God's love and his compassion and respond appropriately. We need to allow others to do that as well. Then why do we as believers wander away? We belong with the sheep. We are of our great value and belong with others that have great value. And we are sons and daughters of the Father. Why would we ever leave this? That's the question, so how do we wander? Listen, simple message. We could have landed completely somewhere else today with a different lens. But because I'm saying this text is about those that know God and have wandered from His truth, wandered astray, have left themselves Alone and isolated. We separate ourselves from that which God gave us as a gift. And when we do this, we have wandered. Let me give you some examples. Not meaning to touch on, step on toes. No, maybe I am. I don't know. We'll see. Because this is the word of the Lord this morning. If you forsake the gathering, that means... The regular coming together as the church, you are wandering some other way. If you forsake praying to God, constant conversation, you are wandering away. If you forsake learning the word of God for you and your life, you are wandering. If you forsake any sort of fellowship, that is coming together to meet the needs of the believers and body of believers, then you are wandering. If you forsake the infilling of the Spirit for you to be victorious and to be sent, you are wandering. There, there's no other 
way around it. You either come and gather and are with the flock, but in the sense of the flock, then the shepherd sends them away. But then he brings them back and sends them away. And then he brings them back in hopes that what? When they're sent and they're brought back, they bring others. That's not wandering. That's following the command of being a disciple in this world. But far too often, our lives become preoccupied. They become busy. And things get stirred up in our hearts and minds. A thought comes to mind that other things are more valuable. I know we don't offer anything other than a Saturday. And I pray to God and start praying that we can offer an alternative time other than this service. But this is the time. And we've made it 1030 because we believe it's the easiest time and according to most statistics one of the most attended times on Sunday to me is God's people don't do it because I like to, to speak to you I really don't like to speak I don't like that responsibility but I'm called to preach and I've got to and if there was one or if there was a thousand I'd do it anyways but because we've made it a point together like this we get to hear God's word and it's full circle in a sense to hear exactly what he's saying about the importance of gathering regular gathering, making this a priority and a time for yourself. Yes, there might be times of retreat and refreshment and vacations and things of that nature, but when something else takes place of this, out of your control, and there are very few exceptions, and we'd have to have conversations on that. There's things that are out of your control at times. I understand that. That's not a guilt trip. It's to say how wonderful it is to be able to have an opportunity to gather like this. Because this is what God did. When we said yes to Jesus, we said yes to the church. And it's a place where we can get healthy and grow. It's a place where we are protected from the dangers of this world. See, when we're sent, and you're like, well, what about going outside this place? When we're sent, we go with the power of the Holy Spirit. We go with the strength of the Holy Spirit. We go with the victory of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't work for us until we get back to the gathering where the Holy Spirit pours his presence out on us once again. Everything in my life, every experience of value that has turned my heart towards God has either been encountered in a gathering like this or a retreat where the people of God gathered. And if I happen to be alone in certain moments, I ran back to declare the goodness of God to the church. We do not walk this faith alone. Whoever, I remember sitting in a cubicle or a desk next to a lady. Her name is Carol, and I would work with her. And she had this view of church, this disdain. Somehow she was hurt. Somehow she was bothered. And I understand those things. But to make an association that all churches are this way or all people of God are this way, is, it's, just, it's a bummer, I'll be honest with you. But she said, I don't have to go to church to have faith in Christ. No, I just think that your faith in Christ reminds you of the greatest privilege. And sent them back together. No person is saved on their own to live isolated. You can't give me the whole, but what if I found Jesus on an island all by myself? I'll let that person deal with God. None of us have that excuse here. It doesn't need to be preached. What needs to be preached is the importance of staying together. Of being together, of growing together, and even making each other miserable at times. But all the while knowing that I'd rather, as I said this before, I'd rather have my kids and my family hurt in the church where we preach forgiveness and restoration than in a world where they chuck you to the gutter and don't give you a rip. 
I'd rather it be a place where they can learn to heal and deal with conflict in a godly way. Through Matthew 18, deal with the celebration of victories. A village celebrates life. A couple weeks ago, we were at Zach at Priscilla's wedding. Zach Mattis got married in Flagstaff. And it was so neat to see the collection of people that had gathered in, 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 uh, from, from the bridge here, gathered at this wedding and, it, and celebrated. And we realized, wow, the, the pieces we have uh, uh, instilled into this young man and the, the pieces of ourselves that we have given because he's been a part of a village and a church, it doesn't exist in any other way like it. God gave us that privilege. Someone here might be hurt. And again, you've gathered, so that's okay, but you're, you're still distanced. You're here in location, but you're not connected to the church. And so the scripture speaks to you. You know, we could be physically present but spiritually, mentally, and emotionally distant. Two things. First, you need the church. But because you're so valuable, the church needs you. Needs you to be healed and on a journey of solving that which is mental, emotional, and spiritual in the context of someone who loves you and can speak into that life for you. If you're in the body of Christ, but you sit miserable because you know you've been brought back, but you hear the older brother's voice louder than you do the father's, I think you might need to give yourself a break. God just wants you to let his full work of grace begin to move in and through your life. Some of us cannot forgive ourselves. I can't imagine what that's like for the younger brother to come back and all that to happen and to look around like, I don't deserve that. And that God's like, that's why I'm giving it to you because your heart says I don't deserve that. And the elder brother looks upon that and he's like, he doesn't deserve that. We don't need elder brother voices. We need voices of the Father who's love and compassion in our church. And if somebody's ever done that, you need to go to someone and make that right. Because you know what? Most people come to church and they already struggle with the guilt. We have memories. We can't get rid of it. Something creeps up and you're like, I did that. That was so horrible. And God's like, yes, and I want to move you forward. Doesn't mean that there, has, there is not a chance to, for forgiveness and restitution and full restoration in that relationship. Those things are on us to be with each other, to go and ask. And if it's denied, that's okay. But when it's, when it's, when it's given, when someone acknowledges that and they say, I do forgive you. Now to walk in that restitution, making it right Talk about those things. If it was money owed, figure out a way to pay it back. Whatever those things look like. And I imagine Jesus has got all these visuals about what it was like to live in community as the people of Israel. That they would give back what was owed in that relationship amongst each other. Help solve problems for them now in the future, making it right. Offering back sacrifices something in your life. But all the while to say, in that process, relationships are restored. We may come and look like a church, but it's possible. I'm not accusing. It's only up to you and your own heart and mind. We may come and look like a church, even maybe to some outsiders, but you, you alone know whether or not you sit as an individual. And therefore, in your heart already, God knows it, you have become a wanderer. Somebody here might also need to start giving somebody else a break and allowing them to let that grace work in their lives. Um, it's not often preached like that, is it? It's not often a gift that we bestow upon people or, or even in our conversations, hey, 
Does the love and compassion of God show up in your life? Are you giving the same sort of grace to everyone else and allowing them to become part of the family of God? That doesn't mean that we, again, excuse poor behavior and we don't enter into things or even ignorance or shortcomings. We enter into it for the love and the sake of a church that should be unified. If we're not careful, we walk into a text like this and we think this is about lost souls and unbelievers and yet it really stings the heart for us today because it's actually about us. Are we prone to wander? Yes, we are. What will stop the wandering? It's you knowing that the best place for you to be is regularly a part of the flock. The best place for you to be is a coin in its right coin bag. The blessed place for you to be is in the kingdom, serving the purposes of the kingdom, showing the world your identity and being cleansed by the blood of Christ, now projecting to the world a holy people that God has made holy and living in that the rest of your life. If anything takes you away from that, on a regular basis, you need to start praying, God, why? I can't, it's weird because then people are probably thinking of all these scenarios. You can think of every scenario, make sure it applies to you. What about the one? Let the one work that through spiritually and in counsel and through scripture. But what does it mean for you? What does it mean to be regularly connected to God's flock? Jesus thinks it means everything. It's where you belong. For when we get to heaven, I'm pretty sure there's not going to be little isolated shacks everywhere and you get to live alone for the rest of eternity. I'm pretty sure that all of us will find ourselves in the, it was something we can't even understand here, in the deepest, most loving relationship that is governed by God. With, that's absent of our insecurities, absent of our failures, but only filled with the glory of God. And we're called to start living that now. Why? Because some in the church have completely wandered away and they have no chance of getting back. God won't force himself, walk into that life and throw it upon a shoulder and force it back into the flock. The coin that's lost, God knows every coin that is lost, every soul that is distant from where it needs to be. But it's the son who has to recognize and come to his senses. And if you think you have time to do that, it means I can play with that. That always makes me nervous when kids graduate from Bloomington Christian School. The only church they know sometimes is Bloomington or the youth group or Sunday school. Sometimes they make their way here. And graduates or people a part of the school, you totally know. I taught in 95, so I've seen it through almost every class that I've ever, ever watched graduate. Is it's done and it's over and maybe I'll return to it one day to only find themselves not realizing how lost they are. And unless there's something that awakes in their spirit, like the sun, 
complete humiliation. It won't be brought back. Why would we ever put ourselves in that kind of danger when we could live like the 99 grazing in full supply and protection? I don't know about you, but in a group, I feel more protected. In a group that is the head being Christ, I feel ultimately protected. The church is the place I belong, and it's the church is the place that you belong. I pray you never forget that this morning.